Praise God. Um, if you are a note taker, apologies, there is no PowerPoint today, so I will try and signpost where we're going. Um, but if you wanted a, a title for the message, um, it's called The Most Outrageous Message. Um, the Most Outrageous Message is the title. If you want to write something down, then you can do that. I um, th- This has come out of a bit of a journey this week, really, actually, and I'll... I'll kind of unpacked that, but I want to just say up front, I've wrestled with this message, um, and I want you to wrestle with it too, because it's outrageous, what, what the Word of God says to us, what Jesus says to us. If you look around the world that we live in, the, the, the country or even the, the, the part of, the, of the, the UK where we live right now, think about globally, the impact of Christianity, um, we're not on our, you know, spiralling upwards trajectory. The church isn't in decline, despite what you might think, globally, but, but, but that's globally, certainly in parts of the world, maybe even in the UK, there are challenges going on around the impact of Christianity. And I think it's worth thinking about, why is it that the Christians in the early part of the, the, the church life, in, in kind of the book of Acts and that kind of early church history why do they have so much impact on the world around them that is quite different to the impact that the church has around the world around us now you know if we're honest we're not having the same level of impact that happened there and just just think i mean 2000 years is a long time to get your head around it but wind your mental kind of clock back a bit and just think back to the very beginning you've got jesus and a few dozen followers. I mean, yes, there's, there's 12 disciples. Judas you know, betrays them, so there's 11. And there's some others hanging around as well. So a few dozen followers of Jesus after he ascends and the Holy Spirit falls. And if you look kind of um, statistically, I did a little bit of research around this. So by 50 AD, so 50 years after Jesus, the gospel was spread pretty much to the Middle East. So to Judea and um, Jerusalem, Galilee, Damascus, that region, the gospel spread. By 100 AD, so 100 years after, pretty much most of the major Roman Empire, which was a large part of that, so it starts to extend to places like Greece, Italy, Spain, North Africa, Asia Minor. The gospel spread. Within 100 years, it spread to quite a, you know, a large part of the Roman Empire. By 200 AD, apparently, the gospel message has now spread also onwards to India and Ethiopia. And by 300 AD, pretty much Christianity has become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, large empire at the time. Now, statistically, apparently, I don't know how they do this counting, but they do this stuff, um, 2.3 billion people on the planet, which is about 30% of of the planet, have a Christian faith. This is quite an impact from a small group of people over 2,000 years. And, and if you're like me, I love these, there's a few of these videos, I was watching these videos, where they show you kind of the percentage of faiths and how they've grown and ebbed and flowed and kind of, uh, I love all that sort of stuff, right? And when you watch that, you realize that Christianity has been a dominant religion, um, but others have risen and fallen. And also Christianity's at its times when it's grown and it's waned and it's not been as high a percentage and all that sort of stuff. We've had this journey. And, and for me, I'm kind of a, an asking of questioner. I'm like, why? Why is it sometimes in some parts of the world and some parts of history, the gospel really impacts the culture around and you see this dramatic shift 
and growth in faith? And why is it in other places it goes in decline and, and barely impacts? This is where we're going to be momentarily interactive. Because I haven't got any great answers. I've got a theory, but it's a bit of a scratch in your head. Why do you think? What do you think made the difference? When you see, even now, the gospel really spreading, or back in the gospel days, back in the book of Acts, you see the church spreading, what do you think the difference is sometimes? What, why does the gospel spread more impactfully at times than at others? Preachers, okay, that's one component maybe. What else? More persecution. So where persecution is, we're seeing greater impact of the gospel. That's an interesting one. I don't say that in a disagreeing way. It's a really fascinating phenomenon, isn't it, that that happens. Anything else? Praying. Where prayer really becomes part of the church culture. Okay, anything else? Revivals. Yeah, where you see revival break out and you see this sort of impact to the Holy Spirit. Things are happening at a rate that you don't expect. They kind of come by surprise, really. Anything else? Yeah, so there's a, there's a kind of a, people actually speaking out, actually, you know, not keeping it to themselves, actually sharing the gospel. So I, I think they're all the components, I really do. And, I, 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 and I, I'm not wise enough and studied enough to, and learned enough to go, oh, that's the killer one, that's the, the one. I think they're all components of that. But there's a part that I want to hone in on. And none of us have mentioned it. I think there's a part about when the lives that we're living speak as well as the words that we're speaking. So I think what Sai hit on was really important. We've been called to share our faith. We've been called to wear our faith on the outside. But it's almost like a bumper sticker. If you're going to put on your bumper of your car, you know, a fish or I follow Jesus, then it's a bit difficult if you're going to do that and you're also going to cut people up and stick one finger up at them and beep at them. It's like, I'd rather you didn't put a sticker on the back, really, right? You know, because if the words that we're speaking and the life we're living don't line up, people notice. So I spoke to you last week how we've got a load of building work going in our house and Mark Page has helped us with that, which is a wonderful blessing. And, and I've got to have lots of conversations with Mark. And I, and I asked his permission. I said, Mark, do you mind if I include this story you told me in my sermon? And he said, you can include anything I tell you. So... Um, and he was talking to me about how when he was at school, and this strikes me as a man in his 50s, and he's remembering this story back in school. And how in school, in the particular school he was in, there was a, a large number of, of Christians who he would see visibly in the mealtimes, you'd go into the canteen and they'd sit there and pray before they had their lunch. They'd say their grace. And then at the same time, they were beating people up on the playgrounds later. And it's really struck him. It's like, what's that about? That, that memory has stayed with a man. What's that Christian stuff about if you're just going to sit there and pray about it and then go off and beat people up and act differently? When our lives and our actions don't line up with the words and the faith that we espouse, I think it, it, it erodes our faith. It erodes our, our impact of our faith. I was also struck, and this is somewhat the kernel of the inspiration for this message this week, was... Um, I was listening last week, must have been Sunday or Monday, close to the weekend, I was listening to a preach from another church, um, and most of you don't know the church, so it doesn't matter, I'm not, you know, um, yeah, you're probably never going to hear this preacher. But I was struck, because I want to hear this preacher, because they were preaching about Israel, 
So I thought I'd be really interested to hear this sermon about kind of what's going on in Israel and what it says in the Bible and how God's at work and what's going on and what that means for the world around us and this stuff. And, um, and there was some really good stuff in this sermon, the biblical kind of helpful teaching about what's happening in the region and how that lines up with what God has said and, and challenges and where that comes from in its roots and all that sort of stuff. But in the midst of that, this person gave a story. And their story was one of saying, if we lived, and I'll personalize it here, this is the version of the story, like, if we lived here in the craze, and everyone in the surrounding area around this hated us, and wanted to kill us, and wanted to attack us, um, then it, it, if you were attacking my family, then you're going to better watch out. Because I'm going to defend hard. And I'm going to see you not attack my family. If that's your sole intention, is to attack my family, this area, just because of what we believe, then you're going to watch out. You're going to get as good as you get. And I listened and I thought, I don't think that's the Christian message. I don't. And it really struck me. And I appreciate, you know, um, this is not a message about Israel. But it was very much inspired by the emotions that get risen out of seeing conflict about hearing i listen to a lot of news i'm a news sort of junkie person i like to kind of feed kind of my understanding of what's going on from you know from news sources and what have you and and so i hear a lot of politicians and reporters and people commentate on you know what is going on which is essentially a global or certainly a kind of a a countrywide example of what can happen in our own lives someone attacks us and our response is going to be what? And so uh, it really struck me in hearing this message and thinking about global politics and all this stuff that, that there's got to be something about our gospel that speaks a different message to the world around us. And, and, and I, this is a hard one to tread because I know in my mind I was thinking about this because it, it, it provokes conversations. If you, you know, if you sit around having conversations with people about these sorts of things, about what the right response for Israel is and, and, and you know, what's appropriate and proportionate and all this sort of stuff. And this message is not about that. But I have to recognize it's been prompted by that because I look and go, if my Bible, if the Word of God, if the Christian faith doesn't impact every part of my life and my view, then what is it for? And as Christians, we have... A word of God here that contains some of the most outrageous things. That's why I've called this the most outrageous message. And interestingly, the world around us looks at the Christian faith and they boil it down as external observers that Jesus was a nice guy who did good things and said we should all love each other. Um, and maybe he died, maybe raised from dead. You know, people don't often talk about that if they're not Christians. But they acknowledge that Jesus was a good guy. And that he said, you know... We should treat others as we want to be treated. That's, that's, the kind of, that, that's the world's version of boiling down Jesus' teaching. But Jesus gave the most outrageous example of life. As we see this playing out on a world stage in different nations, human nature at its most ravaging and awful atrocities and awful dilemmas and difficult decisions to be made and what's the right thing to do and all this stuff, we see that play out. We have to put it against the backdrop of the one who never did anything ever wrong. The perfect, 
sacrifice, the Son of God who died on a cross for you. And not only did Jesus die on that cross, the perfect sacrifice for you, he died to save your friends and your family, those loved ones that were like, oh, I just wish they would come to Jesus. I wish they would understand that Jesus loves them. I wish they'd see the hope of the world is found in Jesus. Our hearts go out to our friends and our families and our loved ones. But strangely, Jesus also died on that cross for whichever political leader you don't trust because they're a lion so-and-so. He also died for them. And a number of our church today are down at the River Church um, celebrating with Norman Rose who are renewing their wedding vows there. Norman Rose, who many of you know, you know, got broken into recently. Thieves broke into their house. And Jesus died for those thieves also. And when you think back to the atrocities of September the 11th and people who hijacked planes and got into a cockpit and flew it into a building to kill many people, Jesus died for those people too. And when we think about the atrocities that happened in, in Israel, inflicted by Hamas, going across to kill many, many people, Jesus died for those people too. That is a most outrageous message. The idea that these people, that whatever category you want to put someone in who doesn't deserve it, you might even call them evil, dreadful people. Jesus died for them. It's easy for us to get that Jesus died for me and for you because we're bad, but we're not that bad. And our friends and our family, we see the good side of them. But the idea that Jesus died for those people, as much as he did for you, is outrageous. And it's not the message that the world hears. The world boils down Jesus into do unto others as you want to be done. Which definitely Jesus said that. But it's not all he said. So you can need your Bibles with you because I want to actually look at what did Jesus say. And I want you to, I haven't got anything on PowerPoint. So we, I'm going to try not to jump around the Bible too much for you so it's not too much juggling. But if you open your Bible to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to just skip through a few chapters. I just want to give you a little overview. So Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The, the, the best sermon we've got of Jesus is, you know, we see little snippets, but this is a big, long discourse of Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew 5. And I just want to give you a flavor of where Jesus goes with all this stuff, because a lot of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contains stuff that you'll have heard of. You'll have some familiarity. Some of this will ring a bell with you. And you're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that bit. I've heard Jesus say that. I've heard someone preach about that. So let me just give you a very quick overview of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Bits in there that you'll go, oh yeah, you know, I've heard of that. It starts with Jesus, with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, you know, so he opened his mouth, he taught. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And blessed are those who mourn, for they should be covered. All these Beatitudes Jesus teaches on. In, um, in Matthew 5, um, and then you get to verse 14, we have this stuff about, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. We spoke, we sung it this morning about a light on a hill. This is Jesus' teaching about saying, you've got to make a difference in the world around you. You get to 17 and Jesus, because he's starting to upend some of the law, he says, let me explain to you, I haven't come to get rid of the law, I've come to fulfill it. 
In 5.17, he's saying, look, I'm going to give you some challenge about your understanding of what the law is really about. This isn't me scrapping the rule book. This is me telling you what it's really meant to mean. This is me showing you what the fulfillment of the law is, its purpose and its plan. You get to 5.28. Where am I? Lost myself. And this is the bit where Jesus is like, you know, never mind adultery being a bad thing. If you even look at a woman badly, you've committed that adultery in your heart. Jesus changes the standard that says it's not just about your actions, it's about your heart. Jesus shifts our understanding about the law. You get to chapter 6, and Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that we've said many times. Jesus says, let me teach you how to pray in the midst of this. You get further on from that. In, in verse 24, and he's talking about how you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. You've got to lay it all down and serve God. You're never going to have a divided heart. This is the teaching of Jesus. You get to verse 25, and he says, don't worry. Jesus says, God cares so much for the sparrows and the lilies, and so he cares for you. This is the teaching of Jesus that we've heard. And it's the teaching of Jesus we love to hear. In, in chapter 7, he gets to the bit where he's like, don't try and pick out the, the, the speck in someone else's eye. Don't be a hypocrite. You might have a plank in your eye. You've got to sort out your own sin first before you try and sort someone else out. We get to chapter 7, verse 7, and we get this golden rule that people love to talk about. Oh, sorry, not there yet. In, in verse 7, it's this ask, and it'll be given to you, knock, and the door will open. We get to verse 12, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. He says, look, there's a, there's a way to treat people the way you want to be treated. He gets to the very end and we've got the house on the rock. All this stuff is the Sermon on the Mount. I encourage you to read it. There's some great stuff in there. And stuff that probably the bits I've picked out you've heard of a few times before. Maybe you've heard people preach on that. It's kind of one of the most revered sermons. But I think it contains one of the most outrageous messages ever. So I want to hone in on it. Let's go back into 538. In chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." You sit there and read that a few times, it's going to jolt you. It's going to hit you. It's not a bit that we live in an awful lot. It's not a passage of scripture that we often find ourselves meditating on. So let me kind of break down some of this for you so you get some of the context. Back, back in 5.17, Jesus said, let me tell you, I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm telling you what it was there for, what it really meant, what its true purpose is. 
This stuff about eye for an eye um, actually comes from the law, comes from the Old Testament law. And Jesus said to them, you don't understand. We gave you the eye for an eye bit to limit your amount of destruction to someone else. So when the law came in about eye for an eye, what you were finding, and you still find today now, is what the human instinct is for retribution is I'm going to do what you did to me and more. You scratch my car up, I'm going to let your tires down. You come and shout at my, my family, I'm going to come and punch you on the nose. Right? There's something within the human sinful condition, which is I'm not going to make sure that the penalty is the same. I'm going to make sure that I go further. And this is where we see things escalate. You can watch it from the playground to the world stage. Things escalate. You go read back at the, um, the story of Samson. Samson's got some amazing examples of escalation. The Philistines do this one thing, Samson does even more. They do even more, he does even more. There's something in the human condition. So when the, when the law was given, an eye for an eye, it was God's way of saying, you've got to stop going over the top. And Jesus comes and says, now you've used it like a, a right. You've used it like a right that says, you've done this wrong, so you must have this wrong done to you. And Jesus said, no, I'm actually trying to say to you, if someone slaps you, Turn the other cheek. This thing about a tunic and a coat. So back then, you know, if you sued someone, you could, you could get paid in their clothes. And the tunic was like your inner garment. There was many of those. But your coat, people generally only have one coat. It was expensive. You'd also use your coat like a bag sometimes to carry stuff. It was a really precious item. And Jesus says, if you get taken to court and they find you guilty and they're going to sue you and say, we're going to take your tunic, be generous. Give them more. This mild thing you might have heard before, it comes from in the day when Jesus was speaking, the Romans were in charge, even though the Israelites lived in the region. But the Romans were in power. And there were certain rights. Any Roman soldier could look at any Jewish person and say, carry my bag for me. And they would have to carry it for what was like a thousand paces. That's how they measured a mile. That was, that was expected. That's what you have to do. And Jesus is like, if someone asks you that, keep going. Don't put it down on the thousandth step and go, there you go. Keep going. Go the extra mile. Give more. He says, you've heard that you should love your neighbor. And the context there, as Jesus tried to explain with the Good Samaritan story, you know, was neighbor meant people like me. I should look after you guys. If you're in trouble, then I should look after you. But not the other. Not the other people. Especially not those who are against me. In their context, this was the Romans persecuting them. As we see in the world stage now, we've got people groups that are enemies of other people groups. And Jesus comes along and says, this isn't just, this gospel isn't just for your friends. is isn't just for this circle. This hope, this love, this care, this compassion is even for those who hate you. Even for those who are against you. And, and the reason why I said I wrestle with this is, and I think you should wrestle with it too, is there's things that kind of pull on us here that's going, hang on, I don't get this. This can't actually be true. Because we know also God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. God looks on those who are mistreated and wants to see justice come and often calls us to be agents of justice. I don't mean like in the Crusades, but I mean like people are poor and we want to feed them, we want to help them, we want to put right the wrongs, we want to you know, make sure that people get taken to court for things they've done wrong and justice is served. God is a God of justice. 
But he's also God of mercy. Strangely enough, often we want mercy shown to us and justice given to other people. Right? If I do something wrong, I want God's forgiveness. But if someone does something wrong against me, I want justice. We have this imbalance of what, what's both going on. But also, you know, there are... Our, our general approach to this, when we read something like this, our theological approach would be one that I would call, yes, but. Yeah, I know it's true, but let's not go too far. And this is where I'm struggling as well, right? I'm not, sorry to have, not have a fully formed, like, set answer for you. I do believe there's got to be limits to this. You know, if, if you are in an abusive relationship and someone is being abusive towards you, there's got to be a place of sanctuary for it to stop, for justice to happen, not just like, oh, well, I'll let it happen to me again because Jesus had turned the other cheek. So I don't, wanna, I don't want us to simplify this to one end of a spectrum that goes, well, any wrong that happens to you, you just got to turn the other cheek and let it happen. I don't think it's meant to be there. But also, I think mostly we live in the other category, which is like, you punch me, I'll punch you back. <laughs> you know, you do wrong to me, then wrong's got to be given back to them. And if you just think about it in the smallness of examples, someone criticizes me, ridicules me, stabs me in the back at work or whatever, where does my heart go? It's the smallest of examples, but where does, where does my heart go? Does my heart go to this bit that says, how do I turn the other cheek? Because I get that there are extreme examples where we're going, how do we really apply this, God? What do you really mean by that? But even in the smallest ones, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. So this is a passage I've been wrestling with. And the reason I want to give it to you to wrestle with is because I think we're meant to wrestle with it. If you have simple answers to your life, I think you're not wrestling with it enough. As you look at the world stage and things that go on, if you've got simple answers to it and, and, and you're not reading the Bible and going, but how does this work? How does that apply? What is, what is the Christian hope? Then I don't think you've got it enough. There's a wrestling to be done because this is tough. I... I I do struggle when people say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I know, I know the sentiment of it, which is I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and the Bible comes first. But I think when people say that, they've not read all the Bible. Because there's some stuff that you go, well, I know I've read it, and I know I believe it, but I'm struggling to go, how, how do you really apply that? But the opposite end is we go, well, Jesus probably meant it metaphorically, or he meant it for, for just those people at that time. That's why I wanted you to see the arc of the Sermon on the Mount. There's loads of the Sermon on the Mount that we take, like, yes, Jesus said that. We should apply that. I'm going to ask and keep on asking, and the door will open. I'm going to knock and keep on knocking, and the door's going to open to me. Jesus got that. Or, no, I'm going to treat others as I want to be treated. There's stuff in there. I'm not going to look lustfully. I realize that that's... The standard that God says, it's not just about my actions, it's about my heart. We grab all that lot, and there's this one that will be easy for us to go, yeah, but. And I want to invite you to wrestle with this. And, and so I just want to briefly pick on what I would call the why, the how, and the what. Why on earth would Jesus ask this of us? It's a bit of an outrageous expectation. So why? 
Why has he done that? How did Jesus and the disciples live this? And if I do this, what could I expect to happen in my life? So firstly, why would Jesus even command this? And, and he's put the answer in this little text for us. We've just got to think a bit deeply about it. So back in this chapter 5, um, when Jesus is talking about this stuff, he says, you know, in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he's saying something about, if you do this, you're going to live like children of the King. He's not saying that makes you a son. He's saying in this family, this is how we behave. So that you would be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For, let's look at what God does. God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is a theological concept which is called common grace or provenient grace. The idea is that you and I have experienced an amazing grace of God in salvation. We've experienced an amazing grace of God in his presence and his peace. But there's a whole host of God's grace that he's pouring out upon this whole planet right now. Prosperity, shelter, love care someone to look after them the sun rising in the morning the breath in their lungs the 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 substance of our body that's able to fight off disease the national health service whatever it is there's this common grace that none of this planet deserves god rises the sun on everyone he doesn't just bring the sun up over your house it's not just your garden that's growing flowers it's growing everywhere he says God does not discriminate pouring out that grace to those who are his enemies, to those who hate him, to those who ignore him, to those who say, I want nothing to do with him, he doesn't even exist. He says, do this so that you would be like your father in heaven, so that you would mimic him, so that you would take after him. When we live this way, when we live this way where we love our enemies and we want to bless them as much as we want to bless our best friend, Jesus says, you're acting like the father. You're acting like the Father. Love your enemies. And I don't know if you realize this, because this might be language that you're not used to, but the Word of God says, before you came into the family of God, you were an enemy of God. And he loved you. Before you ever acknowledged who he was and decided to follow him, you were his enemy, and he loved you. And he reached out to you, an enemy of God. Now, most of us, I don't think we've got amazingly dramatic stories here of someone who was a Satanist or, or someone who was, you know, a, 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 someone who was trying to terrorize Christians and whatever. Most of us come from a kind of reasonable background. So it's harder to understand, was I an enemy of God? But when your heart was not following God, you were against him. And he said, I love you. I want to reach out to you. You know, Jesus, back in John 17, this great high priestly prayer you can read about, he prayed for you and me before we ever turn to him. And he's still praying now. It says that he's interceding before the throne of God. And I don't believe Jesus is just interceding for you, his favorite person. He's praying for the world, for those who even don't want to know him right now. God is holding the whole world together for both the evil and the good. For your best friend and for your worst enemy. We're surrounded by this common grace. And, and so there's something I believe when God said, when Jesus said, live this way, he's saying, why don't you put into action 
your very way of life that shows the world my way of life. Why don't you not just have the words, and we need to have the words, we need to share our faith, we need to tell people, but like my example about the bumper sticker, when you live in a way, the world looks and goes, that's crazy. You're turning it upside down. Morning. Hammer. Wow. It's fine. It's fine. There's something about living this counterculture way, because the world gets the example of, if wrong is done to you, make sure you get them back. When you're the one who says, no, I'm going to love that person. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to want the best for them. The world doesn't get it. What we do is we shift the understanding of the world's understanding of the gospel, which is if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you don't. Right? If, you, if you've done enough good, maybe even enough good to outweigh the bad, then you'll get there. That's the, that's the judgment scale. That's the world's understanding of the gospel. Is Jesus came to save good people. And the reason why you're a Christian is because you think you're a good person. When you live in a way that says, no, the gospel is that God loves his enemy. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus who died on a cross. And that's why I'm loving my enemies. We, we preach the gospel with our way of life. And the world doesn't get it. So, you know, I think part of the why is, is Jesus says, when you do this, you're acting like your father. You're acting like him. You're emulating him. And you're preaching the gospel by this countercultural, revolutionary, outrageous idea that Jesus died for the evil person, for the dreadful person. And it's really funny, actually, because I think, you know, I've lived, you know, well, I'm 51, grown up in church circles, gave my life to Jesus when I was nine. You know, so I've been around this a lot, and, and I love the stories, and the church, kind of in general, loves the stories of, here's the bank robber who come to Jesus. Here's the drug dealer who came to Jesus. Here's the contract killer who came to Jesus. They're great, amazing, transformational stories of someone who was going completely in the opposite direction and turns their life around, and we're like, yes, that's an amazing story. Unless you're the bank clerk who had the gun pointed in your face to be robbed. Or the parent of a child who had the drugs sold to them. It's like, no, it's tough for them to love the enemy, to love the person who's done evil. When we do, we, we show what the gospel is really about. That God can actually save sinners. He can actually take really dreadful people and the power of the gospel can completely transform them. And God's pouring out of love on those ungrateful lot that we were until we realized Jesus was who he said he was. He does that and does it and does it and does it more. Because it's by grace we're saved. Roy read it this morning. None of us could boast. I think it's in James, I think, one of the letters, where he says, it's God's kindness that draws us to repentance. It's his kindness that draws us. So there's the why. I'll be quicker on the next two. How did Jesus, just think about how Jesus, Jesus preaches this, how did he put it into action? On the very moment where he's, to be betrayed by his enemies. Peter's got the answer. I'm going to get my sword out. And we're going to start fighting this. This opposition to you, Jesus, these ones who have come to take you, Jesus, I know what the answer is. We're going to retaliate. 
Do you get what I said earlier? They only come to arrest him. No, Peter's come with a sword. He's going to chop someone's ear off. I've got to be honest. I don't know how you chop someone's ear off. That's a pretty accurate shot, isn't it? Right? Or very clumsy. But I'm like, can you try chopping someone's ear off without going one way or the other? But anyway, Peter is throwing this sword around, and Jesus' answer is, I'm going to heal this person who's come to arrest me. I'm going to show mercy and grace and love to the very one who's going to carry me off to my death. That's how Jesus puts it into practice. Jesus is being accused of all manner of wrong things and he's silent. He's not protesting it. I get you can look and go, well, yeah, but he's going to the cross. He knows where he's going. But think about the disciples. Stephen is being stoned to death by his enemies. At the time, the Jewish rulers wanted the Christian faith squashed out. They wanted no more of it. They stoned Stephen for what he preached about Jesus. While he is being stoned, he puts into practice what Jesus says about praying for your enemies. He's praying for those who are stoning him while they're throwing them at them. Literally while he's dying, he's praying, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. He's putting it into practice. You know, Paul in, um, in, in the letters to Corinthians, Echo Jesus teaches, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Peter is sent to Cornelius to give him a message about the Holy Spirit. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. The Roman centurions are commissioned to wipe out the Christians and to root them out and arrest them and get them to prison. And Peter goes and reaches out to his enemy. Now again, don't get me wrong here. I read last week, uh, in, in the message last week, I was talking about how Paul was in Damascus um, and then he heard there was a death threat and a plot against him and so he escaped out of Damascus and, and went to Jerusalem, right? So there's sensibility here. Paul, Paul doesn't hear this and go, people are trying to kill me, right? How do, where do I hand myself in here? How do, I, how do I walk myself into trouble? He doesn't do that. He's sensible. But there's a, a way of life. Karen said earlier that this gospel message seems to thrive under persecution. But I don't think it's just because the church is persecuted. It's because in persecution, churches, Christians, are able, and bottom line is you kind of have to, or you just renounce your faith. You either got to live this thing, or you go, no, 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 I didn't really believe any of that stuff. If you're going to live it, then you're going to demonstrate to a world around you that whilst you're being persecuted, whilst the world around you is against you, you're going to live in a way that Jesus said. And that causes others to wake up and go, I've never seen that before. That, that gives a message of the gospel that says, so even those who are against God, he's reaching out to. He's loving them. Now, I want to get on to this last part very briefly. What can you expect when you do this? I don't want to be super clear with you. Jesus never gave this teaching to tell you how to live an easy life. He never said, when someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. They'll be so flummoxed by it, they'll give you a hug. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, when you get to the end of that mile with that centurion, say to him, should we go for another one? And he'll go, really? I go, no, he's going to take you for another mile. He's go, that's Andy. Yeah, we'll go another mile. This is not the recipe for an easy life. So, so I remember someone said to me, I tried this, it doesn't work. Well, it depends what you think it's going to do. If you think it's going to get you out of trouble, no, it doesn't work. Often you're treated worse. But if we look back over history, something happens in that process where God spreads the gospel. It might be the very person who wants to take you for granted and take that extra mile out of you will enjoy that extra mile. 
and won't see anything wrong with it. You mug, you fool, silly Christian. And you're like, but it didn't save them, Jesus. But around you, people looking and going, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Because God told me to love my enemies. He told me to go the extra mile. There's an impact. You know, um, in Romans 12, 19, it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. So what you can expect is Romans 12, 19. What you can expect is to leave it with God. Now again, let me just say if you feel like you're going to be conned here. Every single sin that is committed, God brings judgment upon. Every single sin, there is a price paid for them. Just some of them are paid for, paid for by Jesus. Every sin you've committed has been taken by Jesus on the cross. God has been a God of justice. You've wronged someone. Jesus took the penalty. So there's a trust and faith in God that says, God, you're going to make it all right in the end. It's not my job to get justice here. It's yours. Now, again, let me just caveat this. Please report a crime to the police. There is a justice system for a purpose. I don't mean that. I mean your personal revenge. Your personal bit that says, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to get mine back. Leave that to God. God knows what he's doing. It's not yours to do. Because if you want to live that way, then you better be asking God to do the same to you as well. I want to pay the price, God, for everything I've done wrong. But no, our faith is I want Jesus to pay the price for everything I've done wrong. So God, I'm going to trust you. So it's not the recipe for an easy life. But it is the recipe for a gospel life. It's the recipe for the gospel to advance and for the world around us to see who Jesus truly is. I want to just wrap up by reading a scripture to you, which is, kind of sounds like it's left field. But I felt I should read this. This is 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.3. This is what it says. It says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a number of great teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And I just want to say, this is not the sort of teaching that we want to hear. We live in a day and age, and I do too, where I want to sit in a pew or a chair, and I want to hear the great stuff. I want to hear how God loves me and he wants to bless me and he's got the best for me and he's, he's, he's for me, not against me, all this sort of stuff. But the sound doctrine is also in there, which is the tough stuff. The tough stuff that's like, man, that, that's going to take some wrestling. That's going to that's gonna be hard. That's going to be like, how do I put that into practice? There's no easy answers here. And like I said at the beginning, I was provoked by thinking about the way that on the world stage there's a conversation about what is justice and what's retaliation, what's appropriateness. I'm not trying to set some foreign policy here. I don't have a clue how to run a country or what the right thing is to do. What I know is in our little world that we live in, the one where I have a neighbour and a work colleague and a friend and a family member and what have you, the same thing plays out. 
which is every time some wrong is done to me, Jesus looks and says, can you love them? Can you love them? Can you pray for them? Can you want the best for them? Can you not seek retaliation and get in your own way and all that stuff? Jesus laid out so much a more radical way of life than we realize. And, and if you find it easy, then I encourage you to read more of it because it's not easy. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. It's a wrestling match. And so if at the very best you're left uncomfortable in your easy answers, then the gospel is taking its work in your life. Because it should leave us like, man, how do I do this, God? How do I put this into practice? It's like, um, you know, whatever you do that you're used to doing, you kind of get used to it. The moment you start to do something that you've not done before, it's this uncomfortable territory. You know you're growing. You know you're being stretched when you're like, oh, this doesn't feel as familiar or common. I feel a bit uneasy about myself. You know you're in that zone. This is where the Bible puts us, in this zone that moves away from easy answers to like, man, I've really got to figure out how to put this into practice. I've really got to figure out how, if Jesus said this, then how do I do that? I don't think this is a hard bit to understand. There's some bits of the Bible that are hard to understand. This is not hard to understand. You don't have to have a theological degree to understand the words of Jesus here. But man, it's going to take you a lifetime to figure out how to do it. Because like, you're tugging at my heart here, Jesus. The very thing within me that wants to get back. Let's pray. Lord, we, we invite you. Yeah, we've invited you into our heart. We've become Christians. But Lord, we invite you into our heart. Lord, our heart that is quick to retaliate, quick to judge, quick to want to get even, slow to forgive, Easy to have them and us. Easy to pour out our love and our grace and our prayers for those who are nice to us and around us and harder for those who are against us, Lord. But Lord, you never promised an easy life, did you? <laughs> Lord, this is your word. So Lord, we come to you and we submit to your word. And Lord, we acknowledge our shortcomings and our weaknesses and our struggles and our strains and we thank you for your grace. Lord, that even if tomorrow we're not living this out, you love us and you bear with us and you help us. But Lord, we ask you to help us. We ask you to help us to put this into practice. And Lord, just like you said to the disciples, that the Holy Spirit would remind them of the words that you'd spoken. I pray, Lord, that something about this message would be reminded in us the next time someone does wrong to us. Whether it's just being cut up in the car, or being undermined in the workplace, or being shouted at by the neighbor, or whatever it is, Lord, help us to have that little memory that you said, love your enemies, bless them, don't curse them. Bless those who persecute you, pray for them, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them more than they ask for. And Lord, may it challenge us to live this gospel life in a way that the world gets to see how amazing you are to me and us here. Lord, how you went the extra mile for me. Lord, how you reached out to me when I was an enemy of yours. Lord, how you go the extra mile for us. Do far more than we deserve, Lord, far more. Lord, may the world see that God, that love that we've experienced. Amen. Amen.
Amen.